0: The Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, music team, for leading us in musical worship. Uh, what a delight, a privilege, and a joy to be able to sing praises to the name of our holy, holy, holy God. Amen. Amen. Happy Father's Day to you, by the way. Uh, let's continue our worship here. I can't think of a better uh, passage for Father's Day than Psalm 51. <laughs> so let's uh, turn to Psalm 51. And if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 51. This is God's Word. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, pure when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, we're just going to dive right in here. If you were with us last week, you can remember that we began our look at the Psalm of King David, which was written for the choir director for public worship in the sanctuary of God. And you'll remember, we looked at it as somewhat of an indicative guideline or litmus test for what it means to be a true believer or true child of the Lord Most High. Again, we noted six characteristics, six traits Some may even call them six evidences of true and saving faith, which we don't have time to go through again in depth, but I would encourage you to listen to last week's message uh, if you missed it. Quickly, though, we saw in David an adoration for God, not merely an admiration. There was an agony over his sin, not apathy. There was an acknowledgment of his transgression and an acceptance of his punishment. Acceptance, not avoidance. David agreed with God that he was who God says he was. A desperately sick sinner who is completely and totally dependent upon the divine mercy and grace for any hope of forgiveness or reconciliation to his creator. When that reconciliation happened, he ascribed to God all the glory. All of it. Every smidge. Every fraction. God is ascribed every bit of the glory in salvation. There is no self adulation in the life of a believer. God gets 100% of the glory. Not half the glory, not 75% of the glory, not 99.9999% of the glory, but all of the glory. And and the believer considers it a delight to give it to him, right? It's delightful. Well, these are the characteristics seen in the faithful men and women of God throughout the whole of Scripture, and perhaps especially here in the 51st Psalm. Today we're going to pick up where we left off last week with verse number 10, where some in modern-day American evangelicalism must see this as David saying, okay, God, I've thought long and hard about this, and I would like to consider your offer. I think we ought to lock arms here. Let's unite and give this old heart of mine a little tune-up. What do you say? I will be better. I will work harder. I will cut a few things out of my life. I will be more religious. And you, you do the forgiving part. You take care of that whole grace thing that I heard so much about from that guy on TV. Was that what verse 10 says? No, that's not what verse 10 says. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. It all begins with the heart. David realized that to change a sinner's heart will take nothing short of a divine miracle, just as in the creation of the heavens and the earth. A creation, by the way, which came from nothing, ex nihilo, leading some to say that this work of God, this changing of a heart that is hostile to him, at enmity with him, that hates him, requires an even greater miracle than the very creation of the world itself. You see, true conversion is a matter of the heart, which David noted in verse 4, God sees clearly. Remember that? I have done what is evil, In your sight, he said. Sight which far surpasses that which we see of one another. We all operate on outward appearance alone. Those guards that David sent over to summon Bathsheba, they could see what was going on. They knew what was going on. As he told them, bring her to me. She probably didn't leave till the next morning. And they saw it. Nathan couldn't... Nathan could see the details of what was going on as David ravaged Uriah's little ewe lamb and word surely spread from there. Certainly people in the kingdom in Jerusalem knew some of the outside details of the scandalous affair, but, but only God could see the details of what was going on in here. Only the Lord. And he saw everything. He saw the yearning, for Bathsheba. He saw the lusting over Bathsheba. He saw the scheming and the plotting against Uriah. He saw it all because he can see the heart. The word heart here is not a reference to the physical or- organ like the atriums and ventricles and whatnot. The heart mentioned here is the innermost part of a man, the seat of our thoughts, emotions, desires, decisions, character. It's been called the center of reason. The place of conscious and decisive spiritual activity. It's our will. It's that which separates us from the animals. It's the real us, which when it's all said and done, only God can see. Only God can see. Last week, I told you about a hypothetical situation involving little Billy, those Tennessee elders who said, oh yeah, uh, Billy prayed the prayer in junior high. He is saved then no matter what happens in the rest of his life, no matter What his life looks like at 40 and 50. I said, from all indications. It seems clear to me that little Billy was never of us. I would say that he needed to hear the gospel and be saved. I can't can't tell people in our church that, that people are saved when everything in their life screams otherwise. That would give everyone a false assurance of salvation, as the scriptures clearly teach the exact opposite. The scriptures teach that we are being sanctified, we are being conformed. We still sin, but there's a godly grief, there's confession, there's repentance, a striving for holiness, there's a maturing in our faith, a growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know what they called me? Fruit Inspector. I thought that was pretty clever. They said, you don't know if he's saved or not saved. You can't judge him. I said, you're 100% right. I cannot tell if a person is saved or not saved. I don't have that ability. I can't look on the heart. There's probably a lot of people who, who, in my finiteness, I've looked at and thought, eh, probably not saved, who were saved. And on the other hand, I'm sure there are more than a few who I've looked at and thought, oh, what a fine woman or man of the Lord Surely the anointed stands before me, who will wake up one day only to hear those horrific words of Christ, depart from me, I never knew you. I'm sure I got a few wrong. They were right. We are finite. We cannot see the heart of man. But there are certain traits and evidences which are observable in the lives of someone who has truly believed, right? Is that right? Ah, you're just a bunch of fruit inspectors. (laughs) Thou shall not judge, they said. Ah, yes. The favorite verse of both the pagan and nominal Christian alike. Matthew 7, Jesus said, Judge not, lest you be judged." Fact. But we don't even get out of that chapter before he says, You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. The bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits, says Jesus Christ. It's true. We don't know the heart of man. Only God knows the heart. God sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. God, who changes the heart of man by his sovereign good pleasure and tells us there will be fruit that is born. And not just for a season till it turns rotten, but genuine enduring fruit, born from genuine, enduring faith. See, we don't, make no mistake, God knows who their pretenders are. We may not know, but God knows. And they will pay. David knew this. David knew God saw what others could not see. I have done what is evil in your sight. Forget everyone else. Forget it. You see what they can't see. You know what they don't know, which leads him to then cry out for a new heart. If God can see this heart of mine, I need a new one, right? Not new habits and practices. That's what we all see. We don't just need new. I need a, I need a brand new heart, what you see. I want a full replacement, not just a renovation, I need a full transformation, not just minor alteration. Please create Barah in me, a clean heart. Doesn't that sound nice, a clean heart? Well, this is the, a reality in the life of a believer. What do we think that word regenerate means? One commentator put it this way. In the exercise of his sovereign pleasure... God issues an effectual call in the heart of the elect. He powerfully summons the sinner out of his spiritual death and blindness and by virtue of the creative power of his word imparts new spiritual life to him, giving him a new heart, along with eyes to see and ears to hear and thus enabling him to repent and believe in Christ for salvation. He effectually calls his people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is the divine miracle of regeneration or the new birth. He sovereignly intervenes in our lives and he makes us into new creatures. We are a new creation. It's a humbling process, it's very humbling, but a necessary one. We need a new heart because the old one's no good. There's an illustration you may have heard concerning the nature of the human heart as told by Malcolm Muggeridge. Working as a journalist in India, he left his residence one evening to go to a nearby river for a swim. As he entered the water across the river, he saw an Indian woman from a nearby village who had come to have her bath. Muggeridge impulsively uh, impulsively felt the allurement of the moment and temptation stormed into his mind. He had lived with this kind of struggle for years but had somehow fought it off in honor, fought it off in honor of his commitment to his wife Katie. Excuse me, Kitty was his wife's name Kitty. On this occasion, however, he wondered if he could cross the line of marital fidelity. He struggled for just a moment and then swam furiously toward the woman, literally trying to outdistance his conscience. His mind fed him the fantasy that stolen waters would be sweet and he swam all the harder for it. Now he was just two or three feet away from her. And as he emerged from the water, any emotion that may have gripped him paled into insignificance when compared with the devastation that shattered him as he looked at her. She was old and hideous, and her skin was wrinkled, and worst of all, she was a leper. He says, This creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. The experience left Muggeridge trembling and muttering under his own breath, what a dirty, lecherous woman. But then the rude shock of it dawned upon him. It was not the woman who was lecherous. It was his own heart. Recognizing the true spiritual condition of our natural hearts is no easy pill to swallow. That's why people try to minimize it or lessen the blow through watered-down theology or out-of-context exposition. It's not easy, but it's necessary. It's a necessary component of genuine saving faith. David says, I need a new heart. A A divine miracle needs to take place here, needs to occur here. And here's the good news. God is in the new heart business. That's what he does. He even said to his people Israel when speaking of the new covenant, moreover, I will give you a new heart. Put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. Give you a heart of flesh. What does that mean, a heart of flesh? Well... It means to have a heart that is sensitive to his convictions and his will for our lives, that is sensitive to sin, that longs to worship him, to obey him, to please our master, to live in a way that is honoring to him instead of offensive to him. I want to ask you specifically if you've come to this realization in your own life. I want to ask you individually personally have you been given a clean heart by god you need to answer this question personally your wife can't answer it your sons your daughters can't answer it your friends your family your neighbors your co-workers they can't answer you got to answer this you can't see my heart i can't see your heart the elders the rest of the, the body here we can't see your true heart apart from god paul said nobody knows the depths of a man except the spirit of the man that is in him you know, humans have a remarkable ability to, to, to put up fronts and facades into making everyone think they're a different person than they actually are, at least for a season. But this is one area where we can't fake it till we make it. You need to be certain. Has your heart been cleansed by grace alone through faith alone? Nobody else knows this for sure but you and the Lord Do you have a clean heart before the one who can truly see your heart? Is your heart clean? If not, I would invite you to go back over the psalm, over and over. Camp out right here on verse 10. Notice how David admits in utter humility, you're going to have to do this. He said, your judgment against me, it's just. I deserve hell. And I will go there unless you do something. Please do something. Have mercy on me, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And he will do it. He'll do it for you today. But you've got to be honest with yourself. Certainly be honest with your creator. David goes on, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Now this does speak of a restoration here, specifically Change my way of thinking. Give me a disposition which is inclined to worship you is what this means. Create in me a new heart and then influence the way that new heart operates. He says, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, what does this mean? We can lose our salvation? No, that's not what this means. We can't forget this is pre-Pentecost, When David talks about the Holy Spirit being taken away, he's talking about the pre-Pentecost anointing of God's Holy Spirit that took place within a person in order that they would be able to accomplish some divinely appointed task or function. That's what this means. It was a temporary indwelling of God's Spirit for a purpose. Think of King Saul. The Spirit of God was in King Saul, right? As Samuel anointed Saul for the service as king, he said this, Then the Spirit of Yahweh will come upon you mightily. You shall prophesy with him and be changed into another man. And the, they came to the hill there, and behold, a group of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon him mightily. Well, just a few chapters, chapters later, after his disobedience, we are told, Now the Spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from Yahweh terrorized him. The Spirit came, the Spirit left. David here is saying, may I not suffer the same fate because of my disobedience. Allow me, according to your mercy and loving kindness alone, and and through the strength of your spirit alone, to go on serving you in this capacity as king. Now, some will will say, well, that's not fair. Why why did David then allow the spirit to remain and and not Saul? Especially considering how David's sin against Yahweh seemed so much more severe Well, as he told Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. He's not obligated to show compassion to anyone. Both Saul and David knew this. Again, very, very important that we clarify this, though. This is pre-Christ, pre-virgin birth, pre-perfect life, life, sacrificial death, subsequent burial, triumphant resurrection from the dead, and glorious ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit came upon people, and the Spirit departed from people, but that changed at Pentecost. That changed, as Jesus did for his people, exactly what he said he would do. He ascended back up to the right hand of his Father on high, and he sent his Spirit to indwell Permanently, those who belong to him as a seal, as a guarantee of future inheritance, says Paul in Ephesians 1. The Holy Spirit will never depart from the true believer. In other words, the true believer can never be lost, they can never wander completely away from the faith. God keeps his children as his spirit indwells the sinner, gives them a pure heart, a heart of flesh to be able to hear his call, to receive his word, to turn from sin, to exercise the faith needed to be justified in the sight of a holy God. He then informs them, he transforms them, and conforms them into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, until their final breath when he calls them home into glory. But David was talking about pre-Pentecost and dwelling here in verse 11. He was held... Justified, saved by grace through faith, just like all other Old Testament saints, but Psalm 51 was written during a time when the Holy Spirit came and went. Very important. Now we have his permanent indwelling, and our lives manifest the fruits of the Spirit, including love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control says Paul, the fruit inspector. Now I want you to notice a remarkable word at the beginning of verse 13 that ties all this together. It's one that's often looked over, or at least not emphasized. It's the word then. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. I'm not sure how long I've done this for a number of years, maybe seven or eight years, every time I go up to preach from the Bible in any capacity, here on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, conferences, retreats, small groups, uh, kids' lessons, Awana, awards ceremonies, if I'm gonna speak from the scriptures, I read this whole psalm right before. Right before I speak, every time I read it, right before I come up here, I read this. And along with David, I ask the Lord to have mercy on me. Have compassion on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Cleanse me. Purify me. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Every time I say this. Every time I read this. Against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are justified in your condemnation of me. I deserve nothing. I can't even believe I'm going to go up and do this right now. I I was conceived in sin. Purify me, wash me, hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And I know you won't, because by your grace, you've taken up permanent residency within my heart. But I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit to now be able to perform this task for your glory alone. Purify me. uh, Sustain me, O Lord, even as I take those ten steps up to this pulpit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, And sinners will return to you. Then and only then can I be of true service to you. And it should be the same in all of your ministries, in everyone's ministries. Take this very seriously. David didn't want to go on being the leader of Israel without first being pardoned, forgiven, and and still indwelled by the Spirit of God to accomplish this task. He he says, first, through divine deliverance, make me to be acceptable in your sight. Then, and only then, will I teach transgressors your ways. That's what this means. Then I can be an example to others. Not as I go on in my sinful ways. What, What kind of example would that be? That would be an example in hypocrisy. And how many pulpits do we see that taking? How many hypocritical preachers do we see out there? He don't want to be like that. He doesn't want to be a, a hypocrite king. He wants to be cleansed, made right with the Lord. He wants to be an example of Yahweh's loving kindness, his steadfast love. Your grace and mercy and and compassion extended extended to me, even though I deserve nothing but death and eternal torment. Use me as an example of how you can restore a penitent people to right fellowship with you, David says. Use me and my failures as an example of how they can experience the same reconciliation by faith alone. Matthew Henry rightly said, penitents should be preachers. I thought that was good. That's what this whole psalm is about. It's not about his specific sin. It's not about Bathsheba. It's not about Uriah. It's about his recognizing his nature, confessing his iniquity, turning from it, turning back to God. All as, as an example from God to show others how they can do the same. This was, this was put to music. Music. This is to be sung in the sanctuary of God in public. Here is the example of of how God can transform a life, use it for his glory. And the same can be said for us. We have the same spirit dwelling on the inside of us, but he never leaves. The spirit who not only convicts us and conforms us into the image of Christ, but who also then takes us in that state of being conformed and uses us just as he did with David to, to be examples and witnesses of his steadfast love and, and his forgiveness of sin. We, we are the light of the world," Jesus said. We are the salt of the earth. We're, we're lighting up a dark world. Salt is a, is a slows the decaying process. It's a, it's a retardant. We are. Di- We're slowing the decay of this earth as as God draws his people to himself, even through our faithful proclamation of the gospel. He says, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, including this one, by the way, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep or obey all that I commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Same thing here. David says, wash me, cleanse me, purify me, create in me a clean heart. Then I will serve you. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. What ways? What ways is he talking about? All of the divine attributes, to be sure, but in this context, his amazing grace, his loving kindness, his chesed, his Loyal love, the abundance of his compassion, that he desires truth in the inward being, that we have sinned against him, but also have the hope of forgiveness. David, finally alluding to specific sin, says in verse 14, he prays, uh, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue Will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Charles Spurgeon said, A great sinner makes a great singer. And we know, just like the rest of us, David was a great sinner. This blood guiltiness literally reads blood's plural. It speaks of blood that was shed as a result of David's transgression here. Certainly Uriah, but who knows how many countless others suffered because of the king's actions. David knows the strife he has caused, and he goes back to the Lord for deliverance. He says, rescue me from the weight of this. Save me from this, God. He ran to God alone for salvation. Do this for me, O Lord. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Now, what righteousness is he talking about here? That God is infinitely righteous in nature? Is he singing about his divine attribute of righteousness? Sure, but I think it goes even deeper. I believe this, is, this speaks of the righteousness that is imputed to or credited to David's account based on his faith alone in the promises of God alone. He was justified by grace alone. And his heart longs to sing out in joyful praise and exultation. He's so thankful to be saved by grace. He's so thankful to be made righteous. He can't help but sing out in praise. And it ought to be the same for us, right? The Christian has been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness was imputed to us or credited to our account. Not only to the point where God no longer looks at us as wretched sinners but that he now looks as, or sees us as if we had lived the perfect life that his son has lived. You understand this is why they call it the great exchange. Not only did the father lay on Christ the judgment that belonged to us rightly, not only did he lay upon him the iniquity that, of us all, not only did he take our place on the cross, not only did he bear the full weight of of our punishment of sin. Not only did he bear the wrath of his Father in heaven being separated from him for the first time in all of eternity so that all who believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation would never have to be. If all that wasn't enough, we then get the credit for the perfect life he lived. The Father now sees us as he sees his Son. As if we had never sinned, as we stand robed in Christ's righteousness, allowing us to have full access to the throne room of heaven. It's this righteousness that causes David to sing out, to write hymns and spiritual songs centered around the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and righteousness of the Lord. He sings about his Lord just like we sing about our Lord. I will sing of his wonderful mercy to me. I'll praise him till all men his goodness shall see. I'll sing of salvation at home and abroad till many shall hear the truth and trust in God. What a privilege it is to sing out to the Lord in praise. Amen? Amen. Well, that's exactly what we see in this psalm. David even says... O oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Again, David wasn't con- concerned about the Lord violating his free will here. Open my lips, he says. Move my lips. Control my mouth, as Moses said. I am one with a hard mouth and a hard tongue. Yahweh replied, I will be with your mouth, Moses That's what David desires. Open my mouth. Use me as a conduit. He saw God's mastery over his life as a blessing, not a burden. The takeaway in verses 13 through 15 is clear. True conversion will result in true commission. Direct application. If you are truly a child of God, You will be used by God for the glory of God. He has gifted you through the power of His Holy Spirit to serve the rest of His body in some way. Ephesians 4, Paul writes, To each one of us, that's believers in Christ, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We have all been given at least one gift to serve the body. We all have our part to play so that the body functions properly for the glory of the head who is Christ. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, all tell of the gifts individual members of Christ's body have been given. In other words, Christianity is not a spectator sport. Part of the shepherd's responsibility is to help you identify and then equip you to use the gifts that you've been given, which we long to do. Paul says... Christ gave the church pastors and teachers to equip the saints, the spirit-indwelled saints, for the work of the ministry, meaning you are the ministers of this church, not the elders or deacons, deacons which we need, by the way. Hopefully this is convicting. You are the ministers, not the guy who stands up and talks the most. All true believers are called to minister to one another for the glory of Christ. It's right there in Ephesians 4. And and I think the Lord has blessed us in so many ways here at Lakewood. Almost everyone is functioning within this body in some area or another. It's it's remarkable. It's unlike any other church. And, And we want to equip you and encourage you to continue to do this in whatever capacity that is. But only those who are truly regenerated truly saints. In other words, we don't want just anyone serving in the children's ministry. We don't, we don't need babysitters. We don't want babysitters. We want people who are ultimately serving Christ through their ministering to our children. Same with AV, uh, or the building, or security, or administration, or setting up coffee and snacks, taking out the trash, facilitating home groups, preaching, leading musical worship, being on the music team, whatever it is. We don't just want Church tasks to be accomplished. Good night. The Lord doesn't just want a bunch of religious box checked. Oh, good. I'm I'm glad they did that again this week. He's bringing glory to himself through the members of his body, through the spirit-indwelled members of his body, serving in various capacities. And once a person realizes they're serving the Lord in all they do, it becomes clear that Every ministry in the church is significant, monumentally significant. No matter how great or small in our eyes, everything we do here is important. Everything we do here is meaningful because it's for the Lord. And what a tremendous privilege it is to function together for the glory of the Lord. Amen? Amen. All the more reason to sing out in joyful praise. So again, I ask, are you indwelled by his spirit? Do you have his spirit dwelling on the inside of you? And and therefore, are you gifted by his spirit and commissioned by his spirit to serve his body for his grace and by his glory? If you have his spirit, you are gifted by his spirit and you will be used for his glory. Are you using the gifts that he has given to you? To neglect, to utilize the gifts that the Lord has given you, it's a form of disobedience. So you need help determining what this looks like. You come and talk with the elders, speak with the elders, Thomas, Chris, Brad, Cam. Come and talk with us, speak with us. We'll prayerfully consider the Lord's guidance together. Now another very important transition takes place here from verse 15 to 16 as David uses the word for. All these words are important. For. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. This reminds me of Psalm 50, which we looked at at the end of the summer last year. The mighty one God, Yahweh, has spoken. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. The world is mine, what, as well as its fullness. What are, you're just burning up my animals. <laughs> Same thing here. We mustn't get it twisted now. He doesn't need our service in the church. He doesn't need us to sing and to pray and to preach and to break bread and fellowship. He doesn't need anything from us. (laughs) But in his grace, he allows us to participate. He allows us to tell others how they can be saved. He even allows us to experience tremendous joy in our salvation, which David mentioned earlier. But he doesn't need us to do these things. In other words, he's not interested in mere sacrifice or work. Or religious deeds. That's not what he's after. He he's after sincerity of heart and genuineness, humility. That's what God desires. Humility. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Make no mistake. He despises sacrifice without humility. These people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They don't adore me. They, what they adore is the position they find themselves in because they got everyone else into uh, fooled into thinking that they adore me. That's what they adore. They're not sincere. They're, they're proud. They're, they're haughty, boastful, arrogant. And they use the name of God to exalt themselves to dominate others, even manipulating them for their own gain. Yahweh despises faux piety. There's absolutely zero room for pride in the Christian life. Zero. We have no reason to boast. In light of what we've learned over these past few months in Genesis and here in the psalm, knowing that our salvation is all of God, how could we possibly be prideful? He indeed took us out of the pit of of despair, out of the miry clay. Not that we were in the pit and we mustered up the strength and courage to reach up and grab his hand, but that he reached down into the filth of human depravity and yanked us out of there by no doing of our own and, and set our feet firmly upon the way, the narrow path to salvation. Knowing this, how could we possibly be prideful or boastful or haughty? How could we then look at others and make the determination within our hearts that they are undeserving of God's grace? Answer, we can't. Without looking like contemptible fools, anyhow. A true mark of the spirit-filled God uh, man or woman of God is humility. A recognition that we are like helpless babies. Look at this little baby going... Perfect timing. Just like we planned it, Katie. We are helpless babies. We're like fully dependent infants. We earn nothing. We deserve nothing. Yet we're still cared for. We're still nurtured. We're still shown tenderness and compassion and grace and love. That's biblical humility. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. And he's the one that wraps our hand around him the cross. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He said that right after he told about the Pharisee and the tax collector and the Pharisee standing there saying, I'm so glad I'm not like everyone else. I do this. I give tithes. Tax collector says, "I, I... wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And not only right before or at our conversion, okay? This humility continues throughout the rest of our Christian lives as we are still sinners. That's why I pray this every time I come up here. We are are still fully dependent upon God's grace to cover us and sustain us. We're still weak. This humility will continue throughout the rest of our days on this earth, and at times, God will allow pain and suffering and hardship and conflict to, to come into our lives to ensure that this is the case, that we stay humble, and not a one of us is exempt. You remember what he told Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 12 after giving him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan? Three times Paul says, please remove this from me. What did God say? He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. That's divine power he's talking about. there. One preacher noted on this passage, God will do what, go to whatever extremity he needs to humble his own. Even if it means sending a messenger from Satan to plague them. Even if it means trouble in the church, as there was in Corinth. Even if it means an attack on his character. And the character assassination that was going on in, Cor- in the Corinthian church was directed right at Paul. And you know what they said about him. He's in it for the money. He's seeking sexual favors from women. He is self-centered. He lies. He's a deceiver, and on and on. All that comes out of Second Corinthians. There are times when God will even allow the tearing up of a church and the assassination of a man's character if it humbles him. That's how important humility is, end quote. Paul was ruthlessly and relentlessly slandered in Corinth. But he understood the purpose behind it. So he said, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. He said, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecution and hardships, for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart o oh god you will not despise even after david was pardoned forgiven himself converted his heart was full of brokenness and humility and grief over continued sin he would still sin he'd take a census 70,000 people would die but now he had a sincere desire to be cleansed of that sin to be transformed by divine grace so that, in the power of the Lord, he could go back to serving the Lord and be an, examples to other, an example to others of the same divine, steadfast love and grace that was extended to him. That's how this works. We've been forgiven much. Here's how you can be forgiven much. That's the gospel. Nobody gets to say, I was perfect, so he saved me. Here's how you can be forgiven No, we all say, I was wretched, miserable. I deserve deserve nothing. And yet he showered his abundant grace upon me through the gospel. Let me tell you about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how you can be saved if you'll hear his word. And I'll say the same thing. Here I stand, a miserable, wretched sinner, deserving nothing more than eternal torment and everlasting fire and the lake of fire. But I have been washed in the blood through no doing of my own. Jesus Christ has forgiven me. He's transformed my heart by his grace alone, through faith alone in his gospel alone, the gospel of Christ, which says that he came into the world. He lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life after having been born of a virgin, born under the law, yet he kept the law perfectly, In its entirety, he never strayed to the left or right, never deviated from his father's will. He did everything perfect, yet it was the will of the father to crush his son as he was delivered over into the hands of lawless men, as they took him and beat him and spit upon him and and punched him in the face and then whipped him with a, a cat of nine tails, before making him carry his cross up, out the streets of Jerusalem, up to Golgotha, where he would then be nailed to the cross and suffer uh, asphyxiation under the weight of his own body. Until he finally breathed his last, bowed his head, and said, It is finished. Before being taken down by a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, being placed in an empty tomb, coming out of that tomb, three days later, a risen, living, triumphant Savior. he appeared to many witnesses. For forty days and forty nights. He appeared to many witnesses before ascending back up to the right hand of the Father and sending his, his spirit to indwell those who truly belong to him. Just like he said he would. For all who would believe and call upon his name alone for salvation. I ask you this morning, are you one of those? Has he poured his spirit into your heart by his grace alone? Has such a transformation that we see here in Psalm 51 taken place in your life? Is this true of you this morning? Has he borne the penalty for your sin in full? Did he take your place on the cross? Will you cry out to him this morning and ask, Ask yourself if you are truly one of his. More importantly, ask the Lord, the only one who knows your thoughts, the only one who knows your heart, who knows the sincerity of your heart. Ask him if if he has changed it. If you're not absolutely sure, then plead with him like David does here to make it a reality in your life. Use this psalm as a model, as an example of true contrition, which leads to true conversion, and true conversion, which leads to true commission. True service for his glory alone. I implore you this morning to make sure your heart is right with the one who knows the heart. It's not worth it just to fool everyone else. Yahweh is both willing and able to cleanse your heart and place your spirit within you. He will save you by his grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, if you will but respond in humble submission to his word. Now we have to close our time together. But I want to direct your attention to the final two verses. The the last section of the psalm deals with David's supplication for others, specifically the nation that he had been charged with ruling over. Notice he says, By your good favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. By your good favor. This could either be a reference to physical walls, which would see their completion in the time of Solomon, Or, some say, metaphorical walls which speak of God's rebuilding the integrity of the kingdom which crumbled under David's shameful conduct. The actual walls seem more likely to me, but either way, note those words, by your favor, by your good pleasure, by your goodwill. If it should please you, O Lord, if you will be pleased do good to your people. Give your people your righteousness, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. They'll truly be righteous. And burnt offerings, and whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. I love that. A lot of people say that these last two verses don't fit with the psalm here; like they were added on at a later date for liturgical purposes, or to encourage encourage future generations during the exiles. But I, I think they fit just fine. This whole psalm has been about God's extending His amazing grace to sinners by His good pleasure alone, and for His glory alone. This is a God-centered psalm. This is not a man-centered psalm. Your loving kindness. The abundance of your compassion. You are justified when you speak. You are pure when you judge. You delight in truth. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will be converted to you. My tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Let my mouth declare your praise. By your favor, Do good to Zion. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. He's pleading for his people to experience the same divine grace and forgiveness that he has received. I think they fit just fine. Don't you? All right. My brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to come back to this psalm often to frequently recall and meditate upon this example from God given to his people of how sinful men and women can receive both forgiveness from and reconciliation to their creator by his sovereign grace alone. Even all of us some 3,000 years later. Even all of us who, like David, can rejoice in and sing of the amazing grace, unfailing love, and abundant mercy that God has for his people. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's do that now as we close in musical worship. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this psalm and just the, the trove of riches contained within. We thank you so much for the example of humility and shown by David and the example of steadfast love shown by you, and just your extending of mercy and grace to not only him, but, but all of us here who believe. We're, we're so grateful. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We're so thankful for the gospel and thankful for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.